So once upon a time, in a reality far, far away, there were parties. People gathered together in large groups simply to celebrate, to connect with others, to eat, to drink, to dance, to sing. Sometimes the parties were elaborate affairs with all the details thoroughly and thoughtfully planned. Decorations were carefully selected to set the right mood. The lighting was considered, the menu carefully curated. Others were more casual affairs. Lots of bags of chips appearing on a potluck card table. Guests overflowing a small space, maybe an apartment with people pouring out onto the back balcony. Parties could be large, a banquet hall filled with people dining on a catered meal, or intimate, just half a dozen folks around a common table enjoying some delicious food and lively conversation. Whether large or small, you knew you were at a good party when there was stimulating conversation, laughter, or the freedom to dance with abandon. Because the best parties were grounded in joy. It wasn't that life was all easy. Things could be immensely difficult, but here in this place, gathered with others for just a few hours, there was communal permission to put the hard stuff aside and honor the good. People could relax together and affirm that they were human and there was beauty in that. They often celebrated occasions to be sure, birthdays, holidays, weddings, but beneath the surface, those people were celebrating something more too. They were celebrating being alive, being together connecting in joy. Do you remember that reality that seems so far, far away now? Can you picture it in your mind? Being in a group of people, no one wearing a mask, eating good food, drinking good wine or beer, connecting in meaningful conversation. Do you remember feeling relaxed? in the company of others, like all the shit in the world, all the problems, you know what I mean. It was just like a bit less present to you. I invite you to take a minute and just think back, recall a party or two from your past, close your eyes if you like, and let's just be there. A time where you could experience real freedom and joy. Breathe it in. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Who were the people that were there with you? What, what were the sounds you heard? What music was playing in the background? What were the tastes and smells you found yourself alive to? Let's just take a moment and be in that space. Remember how it felt. Breathe it in.
So you can open your eyes. I'm starting with this little mental exercise in part to help set the scene for the story we're gonna be considering this morning. Last week, I introduced a new teaching series called The Stories That Sustain Us. And the idea of this set of conversations is that we're returning as a community to the stories of the life of Jesus as told through the gospels. And in this season of what can feel like long wilderness wandering, we're looking at the stories of Jesus's life to see how they might bring a kind of sustenance to us. How might they and the person of Jesus they speak of be like manna for our souls? And as we engage this journey together, what might we learn as a community about what it means to haven, to center our faith on Jesus? So today, we're going to look at a story that comes to us from near the beginning of the Gospel of John. But before we look at it, I think it makes sense to talk briefly about what is this text we call the Gospel of John. Perhaps not all of us are familiar with the biblical genre we call the Gospels, so maybe a bit of a primer might be helpful to give us some context. First, the word Gospel. It comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which means literally good news, okay? So as a genre, the gospels are intended to be biographical, but not in the way that we think of historical biography today. They're intended to paint a clear picture, not just of what Jesus did or what he taught, but why the writers think he matters. They're written to proclaim how Jesus and what he came to do are understood to be good news. The texts we call our four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all composed decades after the life of Jesus. They rely on oral traditions, perhaps other written documents that were circulating in small house churches for decades before being written down in these forms. Those are words we no longer have available to us. The gospels seem to be written in reference to one another. So the first three particularly, often called the synoptics, relate a lot of the same material. Most scholars agree that Mark wrote first and Matthew and Luke seem to use Mark's writing as a template in writing their own accounts, reflecting on a lot of the same events or teachings but highlighting different aspects or shading the stories uniquely based on their own memories, traditions, or literary goals. John's voice is the most distinctive, the most set apart from the, of the four. Many scholars believe he was the last to write, offering his perspective some 40 or so years after Jesus's death and resurrection. It's thought that he was aware of the other gospels, that they were circulating widely at this point in the early church. And John, in writing his own, wanted to complement those works with another perspective. So many of the stories and teachings we see in John don't appear anywhere else. His language is often highly symbolic at times with many layers of meaning. I share all that with you as we go further into this series so you can engage these stories with your own inquisitive mind and heart 
considering afresh what these gospel stories tell us, not only about the historical person of Jesus himself, but also how the literary works of these storytellers, how the way they tell the story reveals their deeper insights about who this person was, why he matters, and how he brings good news. So with all that preamble out of the way, let's turn to our story for today. One that's unique to the Gospel of John, comes in John's account at the very beginning of his ministry, right after his baptism and the calling of his first disciples. And many students of the Gospel note that the first portion of the book of John seems to center on what they call seven signs, seven miracles that are intended to reveal something unique about Jesus. So today, we're looking at the story that's the first of those seven signs. So let's pick it up beginning at the beginning of John chapter two. Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no wine left. And Jesus replied, Woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Okay, before we go on, can we just take a moment to appreciate the very real relatable human dynamics that are at play here? Like as a mother of a teenage son, an emerging young man, I can totally appreciate this dynamic between Jesus and his mother, right? They're at a wedding together along with like a few of Jesus's friends who've now started to follow him. And apparently the groom who's responsible for providing the provisions for the party in their culture, they have run out of wine. So now in the ancient world, this was a huge faux pas. Hospitality was a major cultural value and to not provide it when it was expected could result not just in a little embarrassment, but in social disgrace, even financial calamity. There's potential for the family of the bride to actually sue the family of the groom if they think they've shirked on their social responsibilities. So apparently Mary is aware of the problem and she seems invested in solving it. Why? We're not totally sure. Maybe she's related to the groom's family Maybe the mother of the groom is a close friend of hers. Whatever the case, she sees the disaster that's about to befall this family if it comes out that they have run out of wine. She also somehow senses that her son could do something about this issue in a way that no one else could. What exactly she has in mind, we don't know. The story doesn't tell us how or why she discerns that this is the moment to call upon Jesus to do something wondrous. And Jesus himself seems to resent her asking, why is this my problem? He seems to say, it's not his time, he says, using language that the gospel of John would later pick up when describing the unique time of Jesus's tribulation. When Jesus was arrested, eventually crucified, this would be the hour, John tells us, what we have translated here, the time. It's the same word, the same language. Perhaps Jesus senses that to do something now 
might only hasten that hour coming. But if Jesus's mother is rebuffed, she doesn't seem to take it to heart. She just takes another approach, addressing the servants, telling them to follow any directions Jesus gives them. Part of me wonders as a mom, if perhaps she knows that Jesus might not do something marvelous for her, but if the servants ask for help, Jesus won't be able to turn them down. Whatever the case, John doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us why Mary thinks now's the moment or why Jesus doesn't seem to agree at first. He just goes on and tells us how the story plays out. So let's go on. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. When the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. And in this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay. So despite Jesus's earlier ambivalence, he ends up working with the party staff to do something wondrous, turning water into wine. It's one of Jesus's most famous miracles. And John tells us this is the first of his signs. But if this is intended to be a sign and not like just a cool party trick, what did the sign actually reveal? I think there are likely many answers to that question. Again, John's stories are always so layered. But this morning, I just wanna pick out a few things that I notice, things that I think might be sources of sustenance for us in this moment too. So let's start by considering who the sign is actually for. From the story, we can tell it's not a sign for everyone at the party. It isn't for Jesus's mother. It's not for Mary. She did not need a sign to know that Jesus was special. She clearly already knew and beyond just a mother's bias, right? In a different way, this sign also doesn't seem to be for the steward or the bridegroom or the bride or any of the many guests at the party. None of them seem to know what's gone down. The steward marvels at the quality of the wine, but he has no idea where it's come from. Those who saw the sign, those who were moved by it, those who Jesus seems to reveal something of himself are the people doing the work behind the scenes the people making the whole thing happen, the people in the back room, the servants, the helpers, those who are putting on the party, which apparently also included Jesus, his mom and his new disciple friends. The fact that the miracle is only done for a relatively small number of people at this very large event, I think reveals something unique about what Jesus is doing. He's not here to make a name for himself. He's here to assist and equip those who are doing the work. 
He's here to bless them. Maybe he senses that though it's not their fault in any way, the servants are the ones who are gonna likely bear the brunt of their master's anger and shame when it becomes clear that the wine has run out. They're the most vulnerable. So behind the scenes, Jesus helps them out. Jesus's power is revealed first to those who are active in service. Jesus's power is revealed first to those who are active in the work of service. There is a truth here about who Jesus is and what he's come to do that we would see throughout his life. But it's evident here in John from the beginning, Jesus is a different kind of leader, a different kind of king. Rather than occupying the places of cultural prominence, Jesus locates himself with those without social power. He is present, embodying solidarity with those the culture would exploit and calling his followers, his disciples, to do the same. One of the most painful and tragic things we've seen in the last year throughout this pandemic is the way our culture has shown so little concern for the well-being of those who are doing the essential work of keeping our society functioning. Nearly 400,000 lives have now been lost in our country since the pandemic started with a disproportionate impact on communities of color and low-income workers. The choices being made by many to ignore public health guidance have a real impact on those vulnerable populations. And it's not simply the grocery store clerks or the restaurant wait staff that are, are being put in harm's way without much concern. All the PPE in the world can't mitigate the immense ongoing psychological trauma being experienced by our healthcare workers. As their shifts grow longer, their ICU beds overflow and they're forced to observe so much preventable loss. For all of those doing the work behind the scenes, while the majority are none the wiser, just getting drunk. <laughs> this story speaks good news. The divine revealed through the person of Jesus locates themselves in those places. Jesus is behind the grocery store counter. Jesus is in the ICU. And for those of us who are not the most vulnerable, Jesus is calling us to practice solidarity, to join with himself, just as he called his disciples to help out in the back room, to be present in the places of service, where if we're looking closely, we just might see the miraculous. The second thing I notice about this sign is this, Jesus has the capacity to invigorate our spiritual practices in new life-giving ways. Jesus has the capacity to invigorate our spiritual practices in new life-giving What do I mean by that? Well, there's a detail that's easy to miss here. Jesus doesn't choose just any vessels to use for making wine. 
there were presumably many empty wine caskets around, many empty pitchers that had been used. He could have had the servants fill those with water. He didn't. He asked them to refill the stone jars that were present for ceremonial washing. Remember, Jesus was located in a tradition with its own religious practices. This included the practice of ritual washing. At various times, observant Jews needed to cleanse their hands, their feet, and sometimes even their whole bodies. The water for these practices was always kept in large stone jars because their tradition taught that those were more ritually pure than handmade ceramics that were used for other things. The practices around ritual washing weren't just about physical hygiene. They were rooted in a belief that the washing itself purified the people internally as well. In choosing these vessels to transform water to wine, Jesus seems to be connecting with this tradition, but also transforming it into something new. Perhaps he sensed that the tradition itself had become, as traditions often do, a bit stale. Perhaps he sensed the washing had become routine rather than an opportunity to connect with God and invite the divine to cleanse the spirit, not just the hands. Perhaps he was concerned about the teachings of some religious zealots, leaders in their day who used these purity practices to shame others and control them. John doesn't tell us why Jesus chooses these vessels, but we do see the impact of the choice. At the wedding in Cana, the six stone jars become the means of accomplishing the miraculous. How confused those servants must have been when they're saying we are out of wine and, and Jesus invites them to fill up these religious vessels to go about this religious work that seems to have nothing to do with the problem. But as the servants and disciples witness the transformation, they see something new drawn from the old that they may have taken for granted. And this too seems like a source of good news in this moment for us. Many of us have found ourselves on a journey of deconstruction around our faith. Many of us have wondered if the traditions built around following Jesus have perhaps done more harm than good and made it hard for us to have meaningful connection with God through the Christian tradition. This Jesus sign gives me hope that even if they feel tired or have been misused, our sacred traditions can still be a vehicle to connect with the sacred. The spirit has the capacity to invigorate our spiritual practices in new life-giving ways. Jesus can bring new wine. And this finally brings me to the last thing I observe about what this first sign reveals about Jesus and what he's come to do that Jesus comes to connect us in part at least with abundant joy. Jesus comes to connect us with abundant joy. John doesn't introduce us to Jesus by telling of an angel choir filling the sky like Luke does 
or mysterious travelers from the east laden with expensive gifts like we see in Matthew. But in his own way, he's making a similar proclamation by starting with this story of water turned to wine, that Jesus' coming is a joyful event. God's presence in the world in an active way is a source of life. It's intended to be a party. Think back to that reflection we started with, to your memories of the best parties you've been a part of. Think of those times where you felt freedom and safety and connection and satisfaction physically, emotionally, spiritually. That is what John is telling us. It means, for in his words, the word to become flesh. That's what he calls the coming of Jesus into the world. The word, the wisdom of the divine taking on human form. And for John, that word becoming flesh, that wisdom of the divine coming in the concrete body of a human named Jesus of Nazareth means it's a party. It's a source of abundant joy. There is so much we could say about the symbolism of wine in the Bible, but certainly at its most basic, wine is present in places of celebration. Wine flows readily at the most joyous of events. And in that way, Jesus doesn't disappoint. If you do the math, y'all, he makes them 120 to 150 gallons of very choice wine. Wine that the steward notes is the best they've served. It is immense. The value of what has been produced is mind boggling. And it reminds us that divine, the divine's provision for us is extravagant. When we can really connect with the good news of God's care for us and God's desire to redeem creation, we connect with abundant joy. Friends, many of us are running on fumes these days. Like the wine cellars at the beginning of our story, we've been depleted, right? It has been too long since we've all been at a party, since we felt safe and relaxed and hopeful. That may have some of us feeling really stressed. Some of us may be legitimately depressed. Some of us may find our hurt and disappointment fermenting into cynicism, despair, even nihilism. A dark way of looking at life that believes ultimately nothing matters anyway, so why not just burn it all down? In the last couple of weeks, we've witnessed with our own eyes the terror and destruction that kind of thinking can bring. But I believe Jesus invites us to something different. The spirit wants to ferment something else. The divine calls us to imagine being refueled. The miracle at Cana invites us to connect with celebration and life. It reminds us that Jesus comes to bring freedom and love and joy to all the places of despair. And this is good news 
I think all of us need to receive. I want to end with a story I've been reflecting on this week alongside our passage. As Deborah mentioned earlier, tomorrow is our national day of remembrance of the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King was not simply an activist, not simply an organizer, although he was fantastic at both of those, but he was also a follower of Jesus. And as I think about this story in John, I can't help but think about the interesting ways it resonates with a moment in the life of that particular Jesus follower. On December 1st, 1955, a 42-year-old woman named Rosa Parks sat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And the bus driver asked her to stand and give her seat to a white passenger who had just gotten on board. And Rosa Parks said no. She knew that the request, though legal, was unjust. She'd been working with the NAACP in her community for a while, considering together how the unjust Jim Crow laws in her state and others might be challenged, but without a clear path for how to begin. But in that moment, on that particular bus, Rosa Parks seemed to discern something particular. She seemed to sense that this was a time for action. And so she stayed in her seat. She allowed herself to be arrested and she helped begin a movement. Now, young Martin was also in Montgomery that day. He was just 26 at the time, a young pastor who'd only been preaching at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church about a year. Interestingly, Dr. King was 16 years younger than Mrs. Parks, about the same age in difference in age as between Jesus and his mother. Martin wasn't looking to make a name for himself as an activist. His dream at the time was to preach and perhaps someday become a, a university professor. The bus boycott that was quickly organized following Rosa Parks' arrest was not his idea. And when he was informed about the boycott, he wasn't sure how he felt about it. But the organizers behind the boycott, the folks who were doing the work behind the scenes, they called upon the pastor personally. They asked him to be involved. He agreed to at least let them hold a meeting at the basement of his church, a meeting which he you know, reluctantly attended. Four days after Rosa was arrested, the group gathered at Dr. King's church. They voted to form an organization to call themselves the Montgomery Improvement Association. And much to his surprise, and likely because he was young, unknown, no one else wanted the job because of the white reprisal it would bring, the group elected Martin Luther King Jr. to be their president. That vote happened just ahead of a mass meeting that had been publicized and would bring hundreds of people in their community together planned at another nearby church. King had less than an hour to run home, tell his wife what had happened and write his first political speech, a speech that when given would transform things, help King and the people he spoke to realize together that what they were embarking on wasn't just an effort to punish a bus company for their discriminatory practices. That concern 
that it might just be an unchristian act of revenge originally had given Dr. King pause. But that night, Dr. King's faith, the tradition that informed it, helped him understand that this action could be something more. I came to see that what we really, what we were really doing was withdrawing our cooperation from an evil system rather than merely withdrawing our support from the bus company, he would later write in his autobiography. The bus company being an external expression of the system would naturally suffer, but the basic aim was to refuse to cooperate with evil. Dr. King drew from the words of the prophet Amos when he called people that night to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. In his speech that night and then the words he'd write and the speeches he'd give and the actions he'd organize in all the years to come rooted in deep faith and embodied through nonviolent resistance, the spirit invigorated a spiritual tradition in new ways. People of faith were given a taste of new wine, a vision of abundant joy that was worth fighting for. They came to understand that the divine was with them, that the spirit was calling them into beloved community, that there were reasons to hope even in the face of fierce resistance and oppression. For the Jesus, many of them followed promised good news. So friends, I ask you now, who are those prophetesses and prophets among us today? Who are those mothers? Who are those fathers discerning the particular moment we are in and calling us into bold prophetic action? Where is the spirit inviting us to push through our reluctance and participate in something transformative? How might we in solidarity with all who need more freedom connect with the abundant hope and joy that the divine's presence with us wants to bring. My prayer for all of us is that we may follow Jesus to the places where he is still working behind the scenes. May none of us just be the oblivious guests at the party, but those who have eyes to see transformation and taste new wine. Amen. Amen. Hmm.